0: It's nice to be back with you this morning. I uh, had the privilege of visiting this congregation back in February, and I guess I'm booked to be back here in April, so I'm looking forward to getting to know you all a little bit more over the coming months. This morning I want to talk with you about the prophetic power of liberal religion. That power is something that I imagine many of you are familiar with as members of this congregation. After all, your founding minister, Aidan Ballou, was one of the great prophets of nonviolent civil disobedience. Ballou, of course, did not use those words, but he was a pacifist in an era before pacifism was a widely spread ideology, who counseled that only moral force was powerful enough to solve social problems. He taught that the use of violent means would only beget more violence. Ballou is by no means unique in holding up the transformative power of liberal religion. My mentor at Harvard, Dan McCannon, suggests that prophetic power has two dimensions. It can denounce, condemn those who would, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Grind the face of the poor into the dust. And it can also announce, as Dan writes, Proclaim the kingdom of God that will be realized here on earth. The beloved community. The new society within the shell of the old. This formula is present in our biblical reading from this morning. There, Jeremiah warns the people of Israel that they have gone astray. If they change their ways, he tells them, they will have God's blessing. But if they do not, then they will face disaster. This is the essence of prophetic power. And so one of the things that I want to tell you this morning is that we as a country potentially face disaster if we do not change our ways. I want to start our meditation on the prophetic power of liberal religion with an unlikely symbol. A bucket. Yes, I said a bucket, but not any bucket. Rather, I have a specific bucket in mind, so come along with me and I'll show it to you. See this bucket? To see this bucket, we have to go to a rural church in northern Ohio. It's an old universalist church, in some ways not that different from this one. It was started in the middle of the 19th century by people who believed that God loved everyone, and like your congregation, it played a small role in the struggle to end slavery. That congregation's building is in the style of an old New England meeting house. You probably know what I mean. iconoclastic, white walls, wood floors, wooden pews, simple windows, not much to look at on a Sunday morning when you're diligently ignoring the minister's sermon. But like most churches that were built in that style, the congregation has a rickety old bell tower, and that's where we're going. The tower is only accessible from a ladder that can be pulled up through a trap door. So up the ladder we go. Watch out for the rung. that rung. The fourth one probably needs to be replaced. We're on a small platform now. There are little slits in the tower walls Light comes in and we can see out. In front of us is a solid rope. Do you want to ring the bell? Now, over there in that corner is the bucket I want to show you. It's not much to look at. It's just a bucket. But it's really old, and it's filled with all kinds of nasty junk. There are nails and stones and broken pieces of pottery. What's going on with the bucket, you ask? Well, I almost forgot the most important part. You see, it sat in that corner for more than 150 years. This bell tower used to be where the congregation sheltered escaped slaves. And the junk in the bucket was there as missiles to be thrown down the ladder if anyone ever came to drag the church's wards back into slavery. When I saw the bucket, I was a guest minister preaching at that little universalist church. Apparently, it's something they show to all of their guest clergy. I suspect that for the congregation, it's an important religious symbol. It's a sacred object that represents an aspect of the community's heritage that they feel a need to preserve and share. The bucket represents what we might call prophetic memory, Prophetic memory could be cast as honest history. It begins with an acknowledgment of human agency. We human beings have done much to create the world in which we, ex- we exist. With our hands, our hearts, and minds, out of the soil, under the blessing of the sun and rain, we have hewn our society. This acknowledgement of human agency leads to a second aspect of prophetic memory. We human beings acknowledge that we are responsible for the evil that we inflict upon each other. Here, Rebecca Parker offers a helpful definition of evil. Evil, she writes, is that which exploits the lives of some for the benefit of others. Evil, the patterns of exploitation that shape our lives, is historically constituted. It comes from somewhere. Prophetic memory begins with the admission that the world we live in has a history. It continues with the observation that we are held in the bonds of that history. It shapes everything we do. It finishes with the proclamation that the bonds of history can only be escaped if we face them. In Dan McCannon's framework, prophetic memory, like other prophetic acts, combines the act of denunciation with an announcement. It denounces a historic evil and then announces that if people had not acted, that evil would have remained in place. In doing so, it reminds us that we have been shaped by and will continue to be shaped by history. Many people in this country, particularly white people, try to escape history. It can be easier, more pleasant, to imagine that we are somehow free from history's bonds. Such an act of imagination can provide a false sense of freedom. Resi- existing patterns of evil are reinforced by ignoring their roots. The pretense that we are not formed by history is a dangerous one. History matters. It shapes us in substantive ways. Our communities have been created over time. They are the results of specific acts and decisions by specific people at specific times. The history of Hopedale would have been different if Aidan Ballou had not gathered a utopian community here. The way we remember history matters. In this sense, history is not some static, unchanging thing. It is something that we construct out of the available resources and view through a specific lens. It is essentially a narrative act. Historians take the accumulated detritus of society's archives, the books, letters, half-remembered stories, faded photographs, company ledgers, and fashion a story about the past from them. Ordinary people do the same thing with our lives and for our communities. We find old buckets and make stories of them. In the last months, as the rhetoric on the presidential campaign has grown increasingly ghastly, I found myself thinking about prophetic memory in the debris-filled bucket. I have asked myself the question, what do we today as religious liberals need to be announcing and denouncing? That ratty old bucket and the ugly words of the Republican Party frontrunner remind me of an uncomfortable truth about America. The central problem of this country since since before its founding has been the problem of white supremacy. This is the history that we need to be prophetic about and that many white people are trying to escape. This morning, of course, I'm speaking as a white man to a predominantly white congregation that is part of a largely white, liberal, religious tradition. The term white supremacy might make you uncomfortable. But truthfully, it is an uncomfortable moment to be white. The rhetoric of the President, Republican Party frontrunner has made it clear that we have only two choices in front of us. We can denounce and actively work against the peddling and practice of virulent hatred, or we can be complicit with white supremacy. What the bucket reminds us is that the choices for white people in the United States have always been thus. For hundreds of years, white people have had to decide whether we would accept the system of white supremacy or whether we would fight it. The majority of us who believe ourselves to be white have chosen to this country's enduring shame to accept the system. I use the word believe here intentionally, as Tanakashi Hotz has so eloquently reminded us recently, race is a belief. It is not a biological fact. And yet, despite its illusory nature, it is a belief with profound social consequences. Let me put my premise slightly differently. Those of us who believe we are white have two choices. We can accept the benefit that We can accept the belief that we are white, and in doing so, we can benefit from everything that white supremacy has to offer us. To offer just one little example of that, it's the reminder that the average resource for average household wealth for a white family in the United States is 20 times that of an African American family. Or we can reject this belief and try to make a different world. The prophetic act is to denounce the race for the social construct that it is, and then announce, in the words of William Ellery Channing, we are mem- living members of the great family of all souls. Now, I can well sense that there might be an objection murmuring amongst you. There is a crisis in white America right now. Decades of deindustrialization, the heroin epidemic, the dissolution of white working class communities, increasing death rates amongst poorer whites. The subject of white supremacy might seem irrelevant, a distraction from more urgent issues at hand. Here, I return us to words from our readings this morning. Herman Melville, shadows present foreshadowing, deeper shadows to come. The shadows cast upon poor working class communities, just as those cast upon communities of people of color are shadows cast by white supremacy. The only way to escape the deeper shadows is to step out from under the clouds of white supremacy. This can be understood as a system of racialized capitalism. The great African-American philosopher W.E. Du Bois offers a formula for racialized capitalism. The formula runs the exploitation of brown and black bodies plus the despoilation of the natural resources of the planet equals the foundation of white wealth wealth. Du Bois lays out the central problem with racialized capitalism. It pits white workers against black and brown workers by promising white workers what David Roediger has called the wages of whiteness. These wages include a sense of superiority, the belief held by many whites that no matter how bad things are, They're at least not black or brown. They include easier access to a whole host of society's institutions. Today, people of color are not barred formally from educational or employment opportunities as they were in the past. That does not mean that they have equal access to them. The fear that is so pervasive amongst many American whites today is directly related to the loss of the wages of whiteness. Immigrants are linked to a fear that they will take away the jobs of white Americans. There is an often unspoken fear that the presence of people of color within predominantly white communities will lessen the strength of the public institutions within those communities. Phrases like good school or good neighborhood are often code words for schools and communities that are largely free of people of color. The success of the Republican Party frontrunner is directly tied to his ability to both symbolize the wages of whiteness and articulate many white people's fears of losing them. Under our system of racialized capitalism, white people are taught to blame brown and black people for our problems. Under capitalism, though, corporations compete against each other for the cheapest labor. The problem is not people of other races, The problem is that the system itself is essentially exploitive and pits groups of workers against each other. Du Bois posited a solution to this conundrum, something he called abolition democracy. He used this term to describe the ideology of abolitionists in the lead-up to and aftermath of the Civil War. These 19th century men and women, including the forerunners of the members of this congregation, believed that white free labor was undermined by black slave labor. The only way for blacks and whites to escape the exploitation of the system was to unite to end it. Before the Civil War, this meant the destruction of slavery. After the Civil War, it meant the creation of strong public institutions, like universal free public education that served everyone, not just specific groups in the community. Du Bois rightly understood that the existence of a disadvantaged racial group in society undermines the possibility of equality and justice. In the years following the Civil War, the collective poverty of blacks served as a constant threat to whites. It created a labor pool that could be endlessly used to undermine white labor. And it offered a threatening example of what might happen to those who white workers who failed to buy into racialized capitalism. So here is the historical truth that we, as a religious community, must struggle. Here is the prophetic truth we have been given. This country has long been caught between white supremacy and abolition democracy. The one promotes the wages of whiteness. It rests upon the belief that some of us are of one race and others of us belong to a different race. The other proclaims that we have to wrestle with history and form interracial alliances if we are ever to transform our society. All of this brings us back to our bucket. That bucket suggests that once upon a time, that congregation, like so many others, practiced abolition democracy. In this historic moment, the question is, will we as a religious people once again revive that prophetic practice and revitalize abolition democracy? Or will we give in to America's other tradition, the tradition of white supremacy? Can we step clear of the shadows or forever be stuck underneath them? Let us choose wisely. Amen, Ashe, and blessed be.